Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. The biggest secret of the best traders in the world is that they're just like everyone else. However, they've worked hard to learn the markets and discover what works and what doesn't. But how can you hear about these journeys and get in on the strategies and tactics they use? You can do it by listening to Chat with Traders. Here's your host, Aaron Fifield. What's up, guys? Thanks for tuning in to yet another episode of the Chat with Traders podcast. You're listening in to episode number 36, and I can promise you right now, this one will not disappoint. My guest today is the legendary trader, Peter Brandt. Peter first started trading around 1975, which I'm sure is before many of you listening were even born. I mean, that's certainly the case for me. So that's almost five decades involved with markets, a very long time. To give you an idea of Peter's performance during this time, he has achieved a compounding annual growth rate of approximately 42%, with his best year returning well over 600%. Of course, we want to know about his worst years also, where there has only been three losing years, which were all drawdowns of less than 8%. During this interview, we discussed Peter's early years working at the Chicago Board of Trade and classical charting patterns, which form the roots of his trading methodology. We also get into Peter's views on high-frequency trading operations, why he has the default assumption that every trade will be a losing bet, and some of the common misconceptions about super traders. So you guys are really going to enjoy this one. But before we jump into it, I'd like to tell you about a brand new premium ebook which I've only just released. It's titled, Why Most Traders Never Succeed. The reason I decided to create this was because, as we're well aware, most traders consistently lose money and will eventually crash and burn. Some say this accounts for 90% of traders, but I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the real number is even higher, which is just frightening. I understand the title of this ebook is not overly glamorous. However, that wasn't my intention. Instead, my intention was to create a guide that breaks down why most traders fail so that you're aware of the most common reasons for this. Once you're completely aware of these reasons, then you can better align yourself for success and decrease your chances of becoming another washed up trader. 
The content within this guide is the curated and polished answers from 18 of the high-performing traders who have featured on this podcast. Also included are additional summaries to add context and to help you understand. In total, this ebook is more than 8,500 words long and it's just over 40 pages. This guide is $15 and it's available right now at chatwithtraders.com forward slash read. That's R-E-A-D. Even though this ebook is most likely cheaper than a round trip of trading commissions, I'm offering a full refund if for whatever reason you don't find the content to be valuable. So I'm pretty confident you'll benefit from reading this. So you can purchase this ebook and learn more about it at chatwithtraders.com forward slash read. That's R-E-A-D. You can also look at a few sample pages by following this link too. All right, guys, let's get into it. I'm your host, Aaron Fifield. This is Chat with Traders, and here is this week's guest, Peter Brandt. Hey, Peter, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? It's going well. Uh, th- thank you very much for asking. It's morning where you are and you know, getting to be about dinner time where I am. And But it's uh, good to be on this uh, program with you. I've listened to a number of your casts and, and I've enjoyed them. Well, thank you very much, Peter. I mean, it's great to be speaking with you. Uh, we, we've been trying to set this up for a little while now, but we're doing it. It's happening. So thank you very much for doing this. I mean, it's an honor to be speaking with you. Um, now, we've got plenty to get through in this short amount of time today. So obviously, we'll cover your early years as a developing trader. Uh, and then we'll get into how you trade and specifically some discussion around chart patterns, uh, which I think will be really interesting. You've got a, a lot of insight around this, this topic. So let's, let's kick this off, though, and take us back to where it all started for you. I mean, I understand you first got involved with the markets around about 19... 75. So tell us how this happened and also what were you doing prior to this? Yeah. Um, yeah, Aaron, I, I, the University of Minnesota and where I was a journalism advertising major and, uh, then right out of, right out of college, I was married and had, uh, had kids and yeah, I was a real young guy and we, we moved to Chicago where I, worked for uh, what at the time was one of the five or six largest advertising agencies in the world in Chicago. And, and that was a great opportunity. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm in my mid twenties and I, uh, a, a father of, uh, uh, of one of my son's friends, uh, I met him and uh, he was a member of the Chicago board of trade I worked downtown, and of course, the Chicago Board of Trade was downtown on the river, uh, other side of the downtown. But he invited me to go have lunch with him someday and uh, see what he, what he did for a living. So I went over to the Board of Trade. Had uh, we had lunch in the in the members' dining room overlooking the pits, and of course, that's uh, back in the age uh, days when uh, pit trading was really almost at its peak, and. It was just fascinating to me. I was captivated by it. And so I ended up inviting myself for lunch probably more than he wanted to entertain me. But I was captivated by uh, by all of these guys yelling and screaming. Uh, I think what interested me the most was the fact that uh, here you had people that didn't sit in meetings all day. Uh, were responsible for what they were doing and could determine at the end of the day to the penny how their day was. You know, you talk about direct 
quality in, in, a, in a feedback loop. And they were on their own. They're kind of many of them doing their own thing. And, and uh, I, I just found that extremely compelling. And it was my interest at that point to find a way to get in the business. And that was back in the infancy, really, of futures. I mean, the modern era of futures trading, really, back only to about 1970, 71, 72, uh, part of that prices of just about everything had been flat for years. And then we saw some crop failures in the U.S., uh, Russian grain buying, and we saw price explosions pretty much across the board in 72, 73. So I wasn't really too far past that that date. And uh, uh, there was no MBA fast track back then. Uh, There probably isn't even today in this business, but, you know, everybody, Started at the bottom, and uh, I just really went around, pretty much from door to door at the board of trade, uh, trying to find a way to get in. Uh, I, I finally found a company by the it was Continental Grain Company, which at the time was the second largest grain merchandiser in the world, next to Cargill, and. Uh, Continental offered me a position, uh, which basically meant I, you know, I. I could sit on the edge of the pit and I had to go find some, some people to do business. You know, literally they gave me uh, uh, they gave me a, a guaranteed salary for about uh, six months and then it was on my own. And so I kind of went that route. I had some very large institutional business that I generated right away. You know, I'm just past 25 years old. And uh, uh, I knew back then that that's really not what I want. I wanted to learn how to trade. I wanted to trade for my own account. And uh, it was just for me a question of how to do that. And uh, But in the meanwhile, I had to kind of learn the business and make a living for myself, which I was able to do. And uh, it took me about four or five years, I think, to really become uh, accustomed to the market to figure out how I wanted to trade, uh, really to develop the capital that I needed to trade. Uh, and, uh, and then in 1980, I went off on my own, I left Continental and started a factor trading company uh, as a proprietary trading firm at the Board of Trade. And you know, I guess, as they say, kind of the, the this history. Absolutely. No, that's that's really good, Peter. So I want to just zoom in on something you said there and that you weren't really a trader uh, while you were working at Continental uh, Grains. So at what point did you feel confident to to transition from being an employee there to trading out on your own? Like where did you get the experience to trade before you made that jump? Well, I think in a couple different areas, Aaron. I mean, when you're Back in the days of the exchanges, you were in a building with, you know, hundreds, hundreds of other traders, many of them trading for their own account and found traders pretty willing to share with other people what they do. I mean, some are very private and don't really have much to say, but, you know, an awful lot of the good traders out there are willing to at least ask the specific, answer the specific questions you answer them. And I developed some friendships with uh, with some very, very proficient traders. Uh, and uh, I started a tr- no prohibition against me trading my own account. So I'd accumulate a f- few thousand dollars and try to trade it and blow it up. And uh, I don't know how many small accounts I blew up before I, I, I finally kind of caught the scent for 
the approach to markets, which which made sense to me, that kind of fit who I was. Uh, you know, so would raise five, six, seven thousand bucks, uh, fund an account, and lose it, and do it all over again, and have a little more success, and do it all over again, and have a little bit more success yet. And so, I, I think for me, it was just a question of I, I had to make enough mistake, crashed and crashed and and burned enough times so that I started uh, at least catching on to some themes that that contributed to an eventual success as a trader. Okay, sure. So you mentioned there that you, you were speaking to people and you, you'd made some friends with actual traders, guys who were in the pit and, you know, in the trenches trading. Um, was there anyone who sort of provided maybe further assistance and had more influence on your trading, um, maybe like a mentor or, or someone who provided you with some mentorship during that time or was a lot of it just things you picked up from speaking to different people? No, I was really lucky, Aaron. I had a, a trader, a guy who was a Cargill uh, who befriended me. Actually, he borrowed my wife and I the money that we used to purchase our first house, put a down payment on our first house. He was a single guy. He'd spend uh, holidays with us. We became very, very dear friends. Uh, he's since deceased. And but he was he was as good a trader I think as I've known in my lifetime, and uh, he shared an awful lot with me. Not necessarily about technique, uh, so much as about philosophy, uh, really philosophy of risk management, um, is what he drilled into me. He taught kind of just the practical aspects of of surviving until you were successful. Uh, and because that's an awful lot of think of what uh, uh, I think so many novice traders today try to shortcut the process. And uh, in doing so, they they may not ever really build the foundation need uh, to build on, you know, at a future date. And so he was very instrumental, I think, in encouraging me, but uh, he was also just so influential and drilling home to me the importance of risk management, the importance of keeping your capital together, the importance of taking taking losses quickly. Okay, and just before we move on on that, I've got to ask because I know that many of the the traders who are listening to this podcast are, are searching for someone like that, uh, someone who is going to guide them with their trading and can be there to answer questions and be a mentor. How did you meet this person? Was it from your connections of working on the Chicago Board of Trade, or, or was it? Did you meet this person in a in a different way? No, it, it was I when I was working for Continental. I had gone out, and this was in the age when an awful lot of uh, per, users of rails were still early in the process of learning how to hedge, and and I focused on bringing into Continental some some customers that. Uh, that were users, uh, producers of, of food. And uh, uh, one of those was Campbell Soup Company, uh, another one, uh, McDonald's. And and in the process, we kind of crossed path because they were the oil seeds. And uh, so we became familiar with each other really down by just seeing each other in the elevator, knowing each other were on the floor from time to time. 
uh, striking up a conversation, found, found that we had some other things in common and kind of a friendship developed and then a mentorship developed. And uh, I think that uh, those of us who started on exchanges had a real big advantage to so many traders today that start off behind their closed door in their house or in a small office and staring at computer screens all day in that we were part of community. Uh, trading can be a very, very lonely, uh, especially it is today with the electronic exchanges and people setting up laptops in, uh, in, in an office at home and throwing a couple screens on the wall, interact with other traders. Whereas those of us who spend some time at exchanges, whether they be CME or Board of Trade, uh, New York Comex, whatever, really fellowship and community and sharing in ways that I think were to our advantage. Absolutely. No, you're, you're totally right there, Peter. Um, during those first few years, which we've kind of briefly talked about, uh, you mentioned that you blew up multiple accounts. What actually led to you blowing up these multiple accounts and what were some of the greatest challenges that you had to overcome during these first few years? I think you just have to make mistakes. I mean, I think you just you learn to make mistake after mistake after mistake trying to figure things out. You know, learning to trade is really an exercise in problem solving more than anything else. You know, I wasn't sure how I was going to trade. I knew I wanted to trade. Uh, that was an assumption. I, I I had certain assumptions going in as to what it would take for me to someday be a trader. A lot of those assumptions ended up being wrong. Uh, but I did have those assumptions. And uh, But I wasn't sure how I was in trading. So, you know, I was looking to other guys that I knew were successful at the Board of Trade at the time. So it might be somebody who traded the markets based on supply and demand, and I'd listen to them, and I'd try to trade the way that they traded. Somebody that kept point and figure charts, or somebody that traded spreads, or somebody that traded cycles, or somebody that traded uh, what's called analog year uh, principles. And, uh, you know, I think one of those big mistakes that I made was that I could kind of uh, hook my wagon onto somebody else and, and, and learn how to trade as they traded. Uh, I, I think it always takes a few years to kind of unlink yourself from that idea and theme and to figure out that if you're going to trade, you're going to have to do it on your own. You're going to have to make your own mistakes. You're going to have to kind of uh, pick up a scent as to, as to what makes sense to you, what works for you, uh, what doesn't work for you what time frames work for you, uh, what methodologies work for you, uh, what money management protocols work for you. And so I think it's a process of working through that. And in, the, in doing that, there were some approaches to trading that, uh, that, that I tried that just frankly did not make money, that I lost money. But in the process of doing that, I would learn a little bit here and a little bit there. But more importantly, I would learn uh, I would learn those approaches to the market that just were not me. Um, and uh, so you can discard those and you learn a little bit and you, you go on. You know, learning to trade is kind of like uh, going to a, a university, uh, except the mar you don't get to determine your own tuition. The market kind of gets to decide what tuition you're going to 
but it is a process. And I, I think it's a process that, that uh, takes most people I know who have become good traders somewhere between three and five and seven years to get to the, where they, they really feel confident in what they're doing enough to kind of go all in uh, and uh, take a leap of faith and say, this is the way I'm going to trade and I'm, this is what I'm committed to. And it, it, it takes a lot of mistakes to get to that point. Uh, and it's not something I don't think beginner traders uh, can do quickly. I think those that, that do and come to a conclusion that they really know what they're doing too quickly will end up paying the ultimate price. Mm, that's a really good answer, Peter. I like how you spilt that out for us. During that time, that, that process of you learning and you blowing up accounts and going from um, different approach to different approach, was there ever any moments when you came close to maybe thrown in the towel? You were just like, this is too hard. It's not working and, and giving up on the idea of becoming a trader or, or what was it that like kept you going? Uh, I think what kept me going is that I had an income stream coming to me by doing business with uh, large commercial customers. And so uh, it wasn't like I rented a seat on the board and walked into the pit and put my life at risk and I had to make it. Uh, I did have income and uh the income I had from some of these consulting clients was, was fairly good income for time in history that it was. And, uh, and so I had, I think, a huge advantage in that I didn't need to be successful right away. I had time to learn it properly. Uh, of course, I'd sock money away and lose it, but nevertheless, uh, I, I, I had my uh, eventually when I bought a home, I had my mortgage payment paid. Uh, I didn't have to dip into my trading account, uh, to pay for, uh, car payments or insurance. I, I can't imagine what that would be like, uh, for a new trader to feel the pressure of having to make money to pay for their expenses. I, uh, th that would be a shuddering thought to me. Uh, and I know there are a lot of young traders who are doing that and they feel necessity to trade because that is their source of income. I think that's a very bad place to start off from. So I, I didn't have that pressure. Uh, bought me time. Uh, it could have bought me more time. And so I didn't, uh, during that process, feel like, you know, this was the end of the game and throwing the tall and that's it, because I did have some income flow. Uh, I think there were periods once when I started off and uh, it, it really was, I was dependent upon uh, my own trading activity, although I had money in the bank to pay bills. Uh, but there were times then when I felt a little bit more pressure some times then where I think it could have gone the other direction to a certain degree. I, I look back at some of the trades I made early on and it scares me to think about the risk I took because uh, those are trades that might pay and I might not be talking to you today. And so I think to a certain degree, you know, Providence entered in. So what would you maybe say to, to any new trader out there who's perhaps throwing themselves in the deep end and maybe currently relying on trading as their their only source of income uh, while they're still learning 
what would you maybe say to them might be a more effective way to to learn how to trade? Well, I think they need to go back and get a job, frankly. I mean, uh, I, uh, it, it scares me when I hear from some people saying, you know, I'm going to quit a job that's paying X amount of dollars a year and I've got $100,000 saved up and, you know, I'm going to trade and I'm going to be successful from the get-go and uh, learn a little bit as I go. And, and uh, I think that's a recipe for disaster. I. I really believe that if somebody, you know, training can be a wonderful, wonderful hobby for a person who's a lawyer or an accountant or a policeman or whatever the case can be. If they can learn how to trade, they don't have to trade full time. Uh, trading can be a very rewarding thing for them to do on the side. Uh, you know, they can become, of course, they can't be day traders, but they can be position traders, which I recommend people be anyway. But they never have to really say, well, this is going to be my career. But for those who who feel that that is their calling to be full-time, is to become journeymen in the, in the craft, I think they need, uh, they need to have uh, at least one year and perhaps two years worth of savings in the bank to pay uh, their expenses, their living expenses. And I believe that the capital that they use to trade with should not be capitally inherited or saved up doing up. I think it, it should be capital that they earned in the markets until they've made enough in the markets to support a, a, a trading account that is large enough to potentially uh, their source of uh, a future revenue. I, I don't think they should trade. Uh, and so I think you, you trade after you show that you're successful trading and after you've shown enough trading that you've accumulated what you need to trade then if you want to become a full-time trader and quit a job you know you do so with fear and but uh, so that's my view on that Aaron sure okay no thank you very much for sharing that um, now let's fast forward just a few years and I think it was around uh, the mid 80s you had a kind of frightening near-death experience um, would you be able to perhaps share this with us? And also, did this maybe change your outlook or perspective on life and trading in any way, shape, or form? Well, yeah. I, I mean, it was it was August. Uh, it was August twenty sixth. I'm, I'm right now coming up on the on an anniversary date, but it was uh, I had always been a sleepwalker as a child, you know, even as a young child, four, five, six years old, in a neighbor's garage or outside the home or in the basement, uh, whatever the case may be. I had always been uh, very active in my sleep and at date 1984, uh, I got up out of bed and at uh, 2.30 in the morning fell 17 feet to a concrete slab and uh, and did my spine. Um, I was uh, I was in the hospital for, for 41 days. I was in a full body cast for five and a half months and then in another kind of Velcro halo type device for another four or five months. But... Uh, I did a, I did a number on my spine, and that, of course, is a gift that keeps on giving. But uh, I, I don't know if it if it changed my view of trading so much as it uh, it took me out of action for a bit. 
think it probably viewed changed my view on life a little bit, but not necessarily on trading. Okay. So in what ways did it maybe adjust your, your view on, on life? Well, I, I think that recognize there's more to life than, you know, turning on your quote machine and keeping charts up and trading that, you know, you've, you, you've, you've got your store of value that you, that how do you measure yourself? How do you represent yourself? I, you, do you, do you find your worth based on what your account did this month or do you find your worth in other areas? Markets are all compelling. They're addictive. Uh, it's easy for somebody with an obsessive personality to become all involved in the process of market speculation and, and forget about the fact that there are other things in life that, that have value and that we really need to measure our self-worth and who we are. Sure, absolutely. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Now, Peter, let's move this discussion along a little bit and get into uh, maybe the nuts and bolts of your how you trade these days and how you've traded for the, the X number of years. So how would you describe your trading style and your methodology for, for reading markets? I had in the 70s tried this and tried that, and there was another friend of mine. It wasn't my friend for from uh, Cargill. It was another person I had met at the Board of Trade. Uh, told me that he was a classical chartist to which I said, you know, what's that? Uh, and he said, well, come with me and we're going to, I'm going to go buy a, we went across the street, uh, on, um, on Jackson Boulevard to a little bookstore that was in the block next to the board of trade. And he bought me the McGee and Edwards book. And I'm sure are familiar with that, uh, which I just consumed. I mean, I, 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 I read it literally in a weekend, uh, it just all of a sudden made sense to me. It, you know, I could relate to it. I, I could, uh, I could see myself uh, trying to trade that way. And of, of course, uh, Edwards and McGee make mention early in their book that that a lot of what they were talking about was based on the original works of Richard W. Schaubacher. So I immediately tried to find Schaubacher's manuscript. Back then, it wasn't it wasn't published. You couldn't buy a book. Uh, it was a course, and I ended up buying a photocopy of company in Los Angeles that that had kind of these old manuscripts, and uh, it was really Schaubacher that that really, in a more pure sense, turned me on to classical charting principles. And so I think that at that point, I became convinced that I would be a classical chartist. It just made sense to me. Now there were still a lot of things that needed out. You know, what do you trade? What's your time frames? What patterns do you look for? How do you draw patterns? I mean, 
you show a chart to 10 chartists, you'll probably get 15 different uh, views of what the chart has to say to you. So, you know, it's not, it's not an art. It's not a science. I think it's a craft. And like any other craft, you kind of move from apprenticeship to journeymanship. And in the process, you have to kind of figure out, yeah, you're a chartist, but what does that mean? Uh, you know, what, uh, how does that play itself out on a day-to-day -day basis? And, and I think that's a process. Uh, you know, I look at my trading over the years and I, you know, I'm aware of the fact that I've tweaked a number of things and continue to do so. But it was interesting. I gave a speech, a plenary address to the Market Technicians Association and here a year ago or so, uh, one of the MTA members sent me a copy of the speech that I had given in 89. I didn't have a copy. I had all about it. And I read through my speech and it was, it was almost spooky because there really hadn't been a whole lot of changes that I had made to my trading since then. Their money management, a lot of nuances, uh, but for the most part, you know, I've trade stayed true to the classical charting principles. I think I've become longer term. Uh, I used to trade more daily charts, uh, where now I tend to trade more off of weekly charts. I use daily charts for timing. But uh, for me, I, I look for uh, classical patterns. In particular, I look for patterns that have a horizontal boundary. I do not like diagonal boundaries. I hate trend lines. I, uh, when I see a chart, a slanted line, it freaks me out. I, I don't, I think that's a low probability payout. I want to look for a chart that's got, uh, uh, a recognizable chart pattern with defined horizontal boundaries, such as a descending triangle or a rectangle, uh, or head and shoulders pattern. I mean, those are those are probably three of the patterns that trade more often than any. Uh, I look for patterns that, uh, that develop over the course of at least eight weeks. Uh, I have no interest in day trading. I have uh, I want to see patterns that I can recognize on weekly charts. And I found that usually a pattern of eight, ten, twelve weeks on a daily chart will convert on a weekly pattern that you can see. But I'll trade, uh, you know, patterns that uh, go on up to several years uh, in duration. I, sometimes these real uh, duration patterns are difficult to trade because the breakouts aren't as precisely identified. You, you're a little bit more sloppy in how a, how a boundary is drawn. Uh, but uh, I, I certainly am interested when I see a pattern that can be uh, uh, in a considerable period of time in duration. Uh, I like those patterns and then I try to find something on the daily chart, which gives me a trigger point. Um, because when you play chart patterns, sometimes you can't be precise as to where exactly that, that line comes into play. And so that's where charts become important is trying to find something on the daily chart that gives me a breakout. I'm a momentum trader. I trade breakouts. Um, it's how I trade. I, I, I've never really become very good at selling rallies or buying breaks. Um, uh, it, it's a skill set I wish I had. I, I, I don't have it. Uh, I, I know some traders do have it, and, and that's their preference, and I think that's wonderful. It, it's just not my deal. Um, my wheelhouse is big patterns and breakouts of big patterns and big 
You know, I, I, I want to, I trade futures and I trade Forex. I trade very few stocks. Uh, I do look at stocks. I look at stock indexes globally, but for the most part, I'm in 90% uh, uh, a futures forex trader of that probably half and half. Uh, I, I like the forex markets, uh, and and of course I, I from origin is a am a futures trader, and so that's that that's kind of my stick. Okay, that's really interesting, Peter. Thanks for sharing that with us. Um, now you mentioned in there like price uh, going through a level of horizontal resistance, you know, or support um, as a breakout. Have you noticed over the years um, that these have become a lot less clean cut? You did mention that they, you know, are often sloppy, but did you notice that they have become more so less clean cut um, over recent years with the advances in technology and, you know, all the rest of it that comes with it, like algorithmic trading systems and, and that type of thing? Yeah, oh, yeah I, I definitely do. I mean, I think charts were more reliable, particularly daily charts, 80s, early 90s. Uh, I I think that uh, uh, today I look at daily charts are, are can get pretty time to time just because of the volatility. But, uh, you know, I, I address that in a couple different ways. First off, I, I don't think that... Uh, we have that degree of uh, added unreliability when we're dealing with weekly and monthly charts. You know, the reason being is that, you know, in a lot of these markets, 50 volume is coming in from, from high frequency trading operations, uh, which of course are, in my opinion, illegal operations that uh, uh, run my orders in advance, know what I'm going to do before I do it. Uh, but, so that's a large amount of volume that takes place and, and those high frequency trading and algorithmic operations are pretty good at knowing where the orders rest and they're pretty good at running stops and they're pretty good at creating false breakouts. And so they day-to-day -day basis is a little bit more difficult to create a false breakout on a weekly chart pattern. But the other thing that I think I've, I've, I've graduated to, I've, I've, gradually moved to over the years is more dependence on on a closing price I, I just find what markets do during the day really doesn't matter much uh, I mean jerk themselves around looking for stops during the day uh, volatility is created to kind of suck people in uh, I, I look at interday volatility as just simply wealth redistribution the hands of the many to the hands of the few uh, and so I really don't want to be uh, pulled into markets based on interday price volatility I wait for closing prices and when we get closing prices I act accordingly so I'm looking for closing price breakouts of recognizable patterns through horizontal price boundaries I think that's another thing that were uh, diagonal patterns, patterns such as the boundaries of symmetrical triangles or uh, the violation of trend lines. I think that's an area that has really become more dicey than it used to be. And for that reason, I tend to stay away from uh, from chart boundaries that are diagonally on a, on, on a chart because I think that's where you get an awful lot of sloppiness. Okay, that's a great answer. Now, Something you said in there which I found really interesting was you mentioned that uh, high-frequency trading uh, should be, you know, illegal or, you know, they're running illegal operations in your mind. So 
what are you what are your thoughts on that i'd love to hear you speak more on that topic on why you feel that way well, I, I mean, it's a legal issue. Ultimately, it's going to be settled by a legal issue, but I think it's an eth- ethical issue and a moral issue as well. I mean, what we know is that these high-frequency trading operations, which are run by high-speed uh, computers and built around algorithms to take advantage of certain market situations, are uh, are piped into the exchanges in the case of uh, – uh, in Hoboken uh, or in Des Plaines, Illinois, they've got their pipe to the price reporting mechanisms than I do. They get prices a fraction quicker. And uh, as a result, they, they know prices are trading before I know what prices are trading at. They have an advantage for me. Even if it's a split-second advantage, it's being uh, on by a computer that has – uh, a microsecond reaction time, and uh, I see it in the way I trade. You know, I'll, I'll look at price. Uh, I'll look at price columns now, and generally, when I trade, I'm not hesitant about covering the spread, which means uh, I don't mind buying at. Uh, I don't mind buying at the offer and selling at the bid. I'll see S and P's trade maybe. You know. 40 contracts offered, 50 contracts bid, whatever. I'll put an order in to get the offer, and I'll click enter, and the offer disappears. Well, it disappears because that computer saw my order going in and adjusted where the offer was. You know, they're, they, they, they don't get an awful lot on a percentage basis of their orders filled, even though they were, they represent a high percentage of the total volume in a market. Uh, but they have orders, they have bids and offers in the, in the markets all of the time. It's kind of the way they've taken the temperature of the markets. Uh, and so I, I, I just have an oral, uh, you know, an ethical and moral issue with somebody that's trading on advanced knowledge of price behavior. Sure. Okay. That's a good answer. Um, I mean, I'm actually really keen to to have someone who is involved with high frequency trading on the show at some point to to get their views on it all. Um, but I mean, I know a lot of the guys who are involved with that that side of trading, uh, you know, try to keep it under wraps uh, as much as possible. But let's bring this conversation back to um, back to chart patterns. So, um, I'd like to ask you, why do chart patterns even exist? Like. Why do specific movements of price occur again and again on pretty much anything that trades? Well, I, I mean, there's a couple different ways that I could go to answer that question. And I guess I'll, I'll, I'll just go right back to Schaubacher. Is what Schaubacher's observation was is that prices, when plotted uh, and viewed on a price graph, uh, can be seen uh, – in the past as either having trended or being in an area of congestion. Uh, I mean, I think there's degrees to which that's true and there's time frames to which that's true, but, but generally speaking, uh, prices at any, during any given time frame usually either trending uh, or congesting. And uh, in the process of congesting, uh, there is the tendency for prices to to form geometric patterns. Now, Schaubacher uh, uh, did a really good job in his book, and people interested in this subject further really should read the Schaubacher book because 
he really kind of goes into what creates these boundary lines, but it is the composite of buying and selling of, of well, back then it was insiders. When he wrote the book, he is referring to, you know, the, the groups of uh, the Vanderbilts and so forth that would kind of get together and decide what they were going to do with market. And so there was collusion and it was kind of these engineer, uh, uh, buying and selling campaigns that would create these uh, areas of support and resistance on a chart, which in turns represented geometry, uh, where I, I think today it's, of course, not collusion, but I think that there are trading operatives, there are trading people, there are involved in the markets who are definitely smarter than me. Uh, there are people that are operating uh, very shrewdly with some in some cases inside information in some cases they're just very it's really smart people and they tend to operate in composite uh, they don't know each other exists necessarily but they're acting like-minded and uh, i think in the process what happens is that large moves don't normally take place on preparation for that move to take place that uh, in general, when substantial moves take place, you are under pretty good assumption that uh, the right people have been prepared for that move, have taken positions for that move, and are making money on that move. And it's so during these periods of congestion, where big money comes in, big money comes in and creates tops, big money comes in and creates bottom, and the process of creating bottoms, tops, and consolidation areas, we tend to find ourselves uh, with developing geometry. Now, I've, I've got uh, some philosophies of charting that I, I think some folks will find kind of contradictory to the fact that on charts. I mean, I, I don't believe that charts are predictive. I don't believe that you can predict any given market at any given time based on the chart patterns. I have a, I take real exception to Elliott Wave people who tend to think that at any given time they can define where we are in a wave structure. That a wave structure is always viable. Of course, they can be wrong and they call that uh, revisions of that structure. Well, I'm a trader. I, I don't call chart patterns that don't work revisions. I call them loss. Uh, and, and so I don't have the luxury of saying, well, I'm revising my opinion. Uh, and so I think it's a real danger to always try to understand market at any given time based on classical charting. Uh, I, but I do think that two, three, four times a year, we see the type of chart that I'm willing to trade in an individual market, look for it. I don't try to study a chart. I hear people talking about, well, I need to study my charts. Well, you know, I'll take a look at a chart and, and in, in, in two seconds know whether there's a trade setting up for me or not. And more often than not, there's not. Most markets, most of the time, cannot be understood based on classical charting principles. And so it's not a function of trying to study a chart so that you can figure out what the pattern is. I think there's a pattern or there's not a pattern. And when there's a pattern, there's a possible trade. Um, and, uh, you know, more often than not, that trade's wrong. I mean, my, my win rate over time, 
only 40% here. And, and what that means is my default assumption on a trade is I'm going to lose money on it. And, uh, and so if you take a look and be wrong 60% of the time, I'm only going to be right 40% of the time. Uh, from the starting gate that says chart patterns that are even well-defined are, 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 are not real reliable, at least in terms of uh, the way that I approach it from a risk-reward point of view. Mm. Now that, that was a really great answer there, Peter. Thank you very much for going right into that. That was, that was awesome. Um, one of the things you mentioned at the start there was uh, people should read, I'm probably going to butcher his name, uh, was it Shoe, Shoe Barker? Schaubacher. Schaubacher. Yeah, Richard W. Schaubacher. And uh, the name of his book, and they can find it on Amazon, is Technical Analysis and Market Profit uh, Profits, uh, P-R-O-F-I-T-S. And uh, allude to that book in their technical analysis of stock trends is, is the basis upon which they wrote. And Schaubacher... And I suppose that, but Schaubacher really formalized classical charting principles for the first time. Okay, sure. All right, well, I'll put a link to that book in the show notes if anyone wants to check that out. Um, all right, so let's keep this moving. Um, would you be able to give us just a brief overview of how you generally actually manage trades? Once you've identified a pattern and you're into, you've taken a position uh, on that trade, how do you then go about managing this in regards to stops? I mean, do you use trailing stops or do you have profit targets in place? What's what's the next step after you're into a position? Well, now it gets kind of complicated, but I I, I can I can try to answer that question. It's not it's not an easy one to answer. Um, I have a lot of nuanced ways to do it, but but let me let me approach it from a uh, from a little different angle. You know, if I were to take if each trade would have taken since the inception of factor trading in 1980 uh, were to be printed out in a in, on a sheet of paper as as statement, you know, we used to get those by the mail. You know, now we uh, some brokerage firms still offer it by mail, but most of them come over the computer. But we used to get statements for every we do, and if I would have accumulated over the years. Uh, a statement for every trade that I would have done and piled them on top of each other. I, I don't know. I, I made that I probably have a stack of paper that's probably eight to 10 feet tall. Uh, you know, I've made literally thousands of trades over the years. I know as a trader what my net bottom line as a trader over the years is. I mean, that's a pretty easy number for me to come by. I just need to run a cum of my tax report, but I've paid the, the federal government. So I know what I've made as a trader over the years. Now, if I were to start uh, picking out of that pile of PNSs, starting with the largest profits and then going down in that order and pulling out pieces of paper until I come to an, an amount that equals my total performance as a trader since inception, I probably only end up with about 10 to 15% of the total trade. So, you know, 10% of producing 90% of the profits or 15 producing 85, whatever the case may be. Now, if I had to go to step further and say, I'm going to study those trades, I'm going to 
look at the trades that were my, I call my met, my net bottom liners, the trades that really produced for me my trading profits over the years, that 10, 15, 20% of the trades that, uh, that I made, my, made money on. Was there anything unique about those trades? And there's quickly, it quickly becomes apparent that there is. They tend to be trades that work right away and they never look back. They break out and they, 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 they don't hesitate. I mean, that doesn't mean to say that, you know, I've got a huge profit at the end of day one or two or three, but it's at least not a trade that puts me into trouble. Um, the person I mentioned who had the biggest influence in my life, the guy that traded for Cargill, he had a trading rule that he drilled into me, and that is you never take a loss home on a Friday. If you've got a loss in a position on a Friday, you get out of it uh, without any question whatsoever. You get out of a trade, and uh, he even took it a step further and further trading this. He didn't like taking any trades home that were losers on any given night. Uh, and he was a position trader. It wasn't a day trader. He'd take position an extensive period of time, but he placed a lot of emphasis on timing. And if your timing's not right, your trade's not right. You know, to be successful, a trade has to be right on direction and it has to be right on timing. And if a trade is not right on both of those things, it's not a trade I want to be in. And so I tend to play markets pretty, um, you know, I, I generally risk, you know, 1% or less of my trading capital, my nominal trading capital on a given trade. And uh, I, I will markets with pretty close stops. Uh, I, I trade multiple contracts positions and I tend to treat uh, an entire position with different trading rules. I, I, I will take half of the position and I'll tend to trade it. Uh, I'll tend to take profits and look for an opportunity to put it back on. So if the short position, I will try to find opportunities to buy the breaks and then some, sell some sort of rally. And then I'll try to hold half of a position for uh, as long as I can. And, and that's three, four or five weeks. And in some cases, there was a trade I did last year that was a Forex trade in the dollar against the Singapore dollar that I held for I don't know, it was four or five months. And so uh, as long as a, as a market is going in my direction, as long as uh, I have a feel that it has further to go, as long as it doesn't uh, start struggling, uh, I'll tend to stay with the trade. But I do not use trailing stops. I think that's I'm kind of opposed to that, frankly, is you say, well, I'm going to um, you know, when I have $500 made, I'll move my trailing stop 250 bucks below it and I'll keep a stop from a trade. That to me is, uh, is uh, it really doesn't make sense because what happens if a person is, you know, you have to ask yourself, why is someone using a trailing stop? And that is uh, that they don't want to give back profits. Well, the reality is that may not be the right reason to make a money management decision. You make, you make decisions based on the markets, not based on your equity. When you start trading your equity levels, you tend to get sloppy in terms of trading markets. And the market's not my equity level. I want to make good decisions based on what a market's doing on the hopes that uh, th that the markets will take care of the bottom line and that I don't have to have my preoccupation on the bottom line itself. 
my focus will be on the market and let the markets take place. Let me just jump off of that and, and mention something control over whether a trade's going to be profitable or not. I don't have any idea whether a trade's going to be profitable or not. I have no guess whether a trade's going to be profitable or not. Obviously, when I on, I, 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 I'm optimistic about what the trade's going to do, but I have no control over what a market's going to do. The only control I have of, is over the that I enter. You know, people try to glamorize the the business of being a trader. You know, trade being a trader, at least being a position trader like I am, is is actually a pretty boring job. I mean, my job is basically that of a glorified order enterer. You know, I want to make sure that the order makes sense based on the chart that I'm looking at. Uh, I want to make sure that my position size and my money management makes sense based on my capital. And and it is so it is on the order that I enter. Is the order that I'm entering this evening, are those orders make sense? Will I be able to look at a chart six months from now and have every entry I make and every exit I make make sense looking back a year a year or six months after the fact. The reality caught up in markets the way that everybody does. I do stupid things. I mean, I still do stupid things. I don't know if I'll ever be able to purge myself of stupidity. Uh, but you know, we don't we don't seek perfection, progress, and uh, you know. So as long as I as I pull myself back, try to yeah, stay distant from the emotions of volatility during the day and have my focus be entering orders that make sense based on my approach to the markets, then I'll let profits take care of themselves. All right, sure. Now, Peter, many traders look up to you, um, you know, especially for your extraordinary returns, which you've accumulated over the years. But what's probably just as impressive, if not more so, is how you were able to achieve these returns with only very minor drawdowns. So I'd like to ask you, what are some of the common and perhaps dangerous mistakes often made by novice traders around risk management? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of them. Uh, and I, I'm not a day trader, so I can't speak to the dangers of day trading. Uh, I'm sure those people who are proficient from different answers to this question than somebody that tends to be a position swing trader. I'd, I'd say I'm I'm kind of mid-range between a, a swing trader and a position trader. And I, everybody's going to place a different frame definition on those terms. I mean, so for me, what's a swing trader is going to be different than what somebody else defines as a swing trader. But I, I think I, I think the big one is just making sure that, uh, you know, whatever your approach is, your approach is going to be in style with the market, in sync with the markets at times and at other times sync with the markets. I don't want to have to get my, myself in a position where I have to change the way I'm trading all the time just because the markets, uh, I perceive the markets as trading. You know, it's well, the markets are trading, so I'll pull plan B out of the closet. I've got a plan A. That's what I exercise is my plan A. And I just assume that that plan A will be in vogue in step times and out of step with the markets and times. And it's what happens during the out of step phases that really make the difference in the, in the end. You know, trading is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's, uh, it's, for me, it's a long-term thing. You know, I've traded now in five different decades 
in five more years, I'll be able to say that I've traded in six different decades. And so my goal is to keep my capital together when I'm in a losing streak. And that back sigh is when I start losing on my trades. It's when I feel that the markets are are not as well definable uh, as they have to be. It's it's pairing my size, it's pairing back my risk. It's at times saying I'm going to be more picky on the signal that I'm that I'm looking at, uh, and it it it's by very careful. It's uh, you know it's diligence. It's, if you exercise diligence, the rest is in the details, and it's by trying to just be diligent to keep my you know, if you trade long enough, particularly in leverage markets like I trade, uh, sooner or later you're going to make money. I mean, you can't help it. If you trade long enough, make money. It's it's not the making of the money, which is the real challenge. It's the keeping of the money that you made. And I have just found that traders that over the long pull have, have records that I admire are traders that tend not just necessarily to be the best at selecting trade. I think trade identification, trade signaling is grossly overestimated in its importance. That money management and keeping a, keeping the capital of an account intact, uh, that's where a trader needs to spend their money management side, uh, not on the trade identification side. I think novice traders in particular place way more emphasis on trade identification than they should. You know, the emphasis needs to be placed on risk management, money management, and on the process of trading, on being repetitive. I'm also a pilot, so I know what checklists are, is you get into a plane and you do the same things. Every time you're in a plane, you go through your checklist. You, you, you purposely look at at and you have a written checklist and you check this and you check that and you go down through your checklist and you're very purposeful in how you go about piloting that plane. I think a lot of traders get sloppy with how they trade and that's that's when they get themselves into trouble. Okay. Now, Peter, we should probably start moving towards the, the later part of this interview and, and start to wind things down. But I've got I've got two more questions that I'm really keen to ask you. So the first one of those would be, what are some common misconceptions that people often have about traders who quote unquote make it? Oh, um, I think a lot of people listening to this will will probably disagree with me on on this answer, but I feel strongly about it. I think my going in assumptions when I first went to the board of trade was that I would become a successful trader because gee, I, you know, I felt I was just as smart as some of the guys that were down there. I would work hard. Uh, I would, I would be studious. Uh, and, uh, I'd put in a lot of effort in that those things would bring me results and I'm not discounting those things. I'm not discounting intelligence. I'm not discounting hard work. I think they 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 play a factor, but there's this thing that comes into bear called providence. Uh, you know, I look back and maybe if I would have started at a different time, I might not have had the us uh, in trading that I have had. Maybe if I would have had different people who would have come around me and been my inner circle, the results would have been different. 
I certainly know that early on, uh, there were a few trades that, that really enabled me to put an account together that was large enough size that it really brought me into full-time tra- way. Those trades might have gone the other way. It could have been a different story. And so there's a confluence of things that come into play. Uh, call it luck, call it providence, call it destiny, call it whatever you want to call it. But that, you know, my outcome wasn't necessarily based on what I perceived as my intelligence or my ability to work hard. There were other factors that that, that kind of came in and guided uh, what occurred. And so, uh, and I'm, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people who take exception to this, that answer, but it, I feel pretty strongly about it. Absolutely. I really like that answer, Pete. I think that that's brilliant and very well said. Um, now, let me just ask you this question. I like to ask it to pretty much every guest that I have on this podcast. Um, and we might have already covered it a little bit through some of the other questions and answers. But just to summarize, if you had to put it down to just one or two reasons, why do you believe the majority of traders never make it to the big time, meaning they never see huge success? What would you put it down to? Uh, they're afraid to lose, uh, I think would be the number one reason is, you know, becoming right on a trade, becoming right on the series, I get personal. Um, hey, you're, you're going to be wrong on a lot of trades. I, I just see that in so many traders they are afraid to put on a trade because they're afraid the trade's not going to be right, uh, that that they're going to be wrong on on the trade. I don't have any problems with being wrong on the trade. I just assume I'm going to be wrong on the trade. As my default position is I'm going to be wrong on the trade. And if your assumption is you're going to be wrong on the trade, you approach money management differently. And so I think that's one reason. I think if there's a second, they trade too big. Uh, they, they oversize their position. They trade too much. They're too aggressive in trying to build a position that's that's larger than their account can support. Uh, that's particularly true, I think, in Forex and futures, not so much in cash, especially with a, in stocks with a cash account or even a margin account. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're reined in based on what your capital is. You run out of your capital pretty soon. Uh, you don't, in the case of futures and Forex, seldom do I have more than 15% of my, my capital committed to margin. But And so they come into futures and they say, my goodness, you know, the margin on a contract of beans is 3000 bucks, and I have $30,000 in my account. I think I'll do 10 contracts. Well, I do one contract of beans for every 100000 in my account or 10 per million. Uh, when I tell novice traders that, they... At, at how small a size that I trade. but uh, And so I think the mistake a lot of novice uh, aspiring future traders make is they trade way too large a size. Okay, great answer. Pete, what an amazing interview. Thank you so much for doing this. I mean, it's been an honor to have the opportunity to, to speak with a trading legend like yourself. Thank you so much for doing this. You bet. Thanks for doing this. What you're doing, Aaron, is akin to what, what, what my friend Jack Schwager did in the form of books, is supply uh, to new traders as well as old traders, uh, just stories about uh, unique things. You know, when I, I, I listen to your interviews or I read Jack's book, there, there's a couple of things that stand out. That is, uh, every successful trader finds their own way. They find their own route. And it's only when they take responsibility for themselves do they really start to achieve and 
own it. Uh, and the second thing is the emphasis they place on money management, the strict emphasis on money management. I think uh, those are two commonalities that you'll find us good traders uh, and across continents. Yeah, for sure. Those two things are very prominent. I mean, even I've picked up from having interviewed, you know, what are we up to now? I think this will be episode 36. So, yeah, I mean, both really good points and thank you for highlighting those. Um, now, Peter, where can listeners go to find out more about you? You know, I do tweet at Peter L. Brandt is my handle. And then periodically I'll, I'll post a blog and that's peterlbrandt.com. I'll, I'll, I'll put a blog up. I don't blog as much as I used to, uh, mainly because I find WordPress difficult to use, but easier sending a tweet. So, you know, if they want to kind of see what I have to say from time to time, uh, I, I will say this. I, you know, I, I have a philosophy that I trade by. It can be summed up this way. Strong opinions, weakly held. When I get into a trade, I have a strong opinion on it. But the minute that trade turns against me, that opinion all of a sudden becomes weakly held. And so sometimes I get some grief on Twitter because I'll express a strong opinion in a market and then three months later will come back at me and point out how wrong I was and what they realize, don't realize is I was probably out of the trade the next day because I have strong opinions weakly held. But uh, And so I take if I, I find Twitter is, is kind of an engaging thing to do. But I think when when you have a public presence like I do, you you get your of uh, who like you, but you also get your followers who want to find every fault you make. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that's that's just part of what we're dealing with at the moment now. You know, with the social media the way it is. But yeah, I mean, I suggest everyone goes and follows you on Twitter. I mean, you post a lot of charts, which I find really interesting to look at. Um, so. Yeah, a lot of value just from following your Twitter page. Um, also check out uh, your website, which I'll link to in the show notes. What is your website again, Peter? Uh, it's peterlbrandt.com. Okay, excellent. I was actually on your site the other day and I was I think it might have been the about page. You've got 11, uh, I think it was 11 trading rules, um, which I thought were excellent and I'm going to link to those in the show notes. So if anyone wants to read those, uh, go to chatwithtraders.com forward slash 36 and you'll find a direct link to those rules that Peter has, his Twitter profile, uh, website and everything else uh, that we've discussed um, over the last hour or so. So Peter, once again, thank you very much. Take care and let's talk soon. My privilege. Thank you, Aaron. What's up, team? It's just me again. Hope you thoroughly enjoyed this week's interview. I can tell you it was a massive honor to have the opportunity to speak with Peter. I mean, he's a guy who's been trading for five decades, which is phenomenal. It's such an achievement. Now, just a quick reminder before we wrap things up here, the latest ebook, Why Most Traders Never Succeed, is online and available now at chatwithtraders.com forward slash read, R-E-A-D. And like I mentioned earlier, I believe there really is huge value to understanding why most traders fail, probably more so than reading a book about how to succeed as a trader, because by now you've probably already discovered there are landmines everywhere, but if you can stay alive long enough, you'll find a way to succeed. The problem is most traders never make it through the initial learning phase, and it's due to a number of reasons. These are documented in this ebook. 
All the reasons provided have come directly from 18 of the pro traders who have featured on this podcast in the past. You'll also find summaries throughout to make things very clear and to help you better understand. If you do decide to purchase this, I really appreciate it. It supports the podcast in a huge way, so thank you very much. So if you'd like to find out more about this ebook, just go to chatwithtraders.com forward slash read, R-E-A-D. You can purchase it there for just $15 and you'll also be able to preview just a couple pages. If you scroll down to the bottom, uh, you'll see a link there in the FAQs. So make sure to check that out. All right, guys, have an awesome week and let's talk soon. You've come to the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but don't worry, more great episodes are on the way. To stay updated with each great new episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, and we'd love it if you leave us a rating and review. We'll see you next time on Chat with Traders.